Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, a library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, it is our pleasure to share a session led by writer Heidi Johnston, poet Andrew Roycroft, and painter and sculptor Ross Wilson, called Stealing Past the Watchful Dragons, from 2020's Hutchmoot Homebound. In this session, Heidi, Andrew, and Ross discuss art as the light and language of the eye, asking why poetic beauty and integrity matter, and exploring the role of story in shaping our understanding of the biblical narrative. Enjoy. Like many of you, I plan to be in Nashville this weekend. Instead, I'm joining you here from Newton Ards, which is just outside Belfast in Northern Ireland. There's a degree of sadness in not seeing familiar faces in Nashville, but there's actually also something really special about what's happening here instead. At a time when we've been reminded of the importance of physical community so much, It's meaningful for me to be sharing this session with two people I have enormous respect for, both of whom are from right here in Northern Ireland and have become friends through the Rabbit Room. I'm here with Ross Wilson. Um, Ross is an internationally renowned painter and sculptor. He was commissioned for the centenary C.S. Lewis sculpture in 1998, which is in East Belfast. His many portrait commissions have included Nobel laureates Derek Walcott and Seamus Heaney and the playwright Arthur Miller, and his work is displayed across the world among several public and private collections. But one of the things that has impressed me most about Ross is the fact that he exemplifies the high, the sort of combination of high quality artistic work with a servant heart and his desire to honour God with the gifts that have been given to him. And I'm so looking forward to hearing what he has to say. We're also going to be joined by Andrew Roycroft. Um, Andrew can't be with us physically because of some family health restrictions around COVID, but he's going to join us through the wonders of technology. He is a pastor at Malisle Baptist Church. He's also a gifted poet, and you'll have seen some of his work featured on The Rabbit Room over the past couple of years. He's an avid reader, and he's generally just one of those people that you find yourself having really interesting conversations with. So we're looking forward to hearing from him. It's been so interesting to talk to both Andrew and Ross about this session and the whole idea of art and poetry and story and the way they can slip past our defences and allow us to glimpse the truth and beauty of the gospel. I've already learned so much from both of them and their different perspectives, and I know you're going to enjoy what they have to say. So without further ado, we're going to hand over to Ross to kick us off. And I'm going to start by asking Ross, Ross, why do you think it's important to see things? As an artist, seeing things is a, I mean, it's my way of knowing. Um, Sight is a very important thing for all of us. And sight is a spiritual thing. Um, When we look at a picture, we look at a landscape, or even when we look at a person, um, that is a silent language. It's something that's inward. It's something that speaks um, to the heart, to the soul. Uh, Edward Hopper, the famous American uh, painter, said, Great art is the outward expression of an inner life in the artist. And this inner life will result in a personal vision of the world. And as believers, we have a responsibility to furnish the world with a personal vision. And that personal vision, uh, as believers, has to take in the idea of truth and the gospel. And that's really important how we um, show that through creativity. Um, It has to be a high thing. It has to be something that has credibility. It has to be something that touches other people's lives. 
Um, there's no point in just waking up in the morning and making another picture, painting another painting. Um, that doesn't do anything. And the idea of art for art's sake doesn't really work. It has to touch, it has to light, it has to ignite um, the inner part of our being. And this whole idea of illumination, of seeing and sharing the illumination of what we see through what we do is so very important. Um, that's the thing that touches. That's the thing that makes people um, feel. And great art, um, great music, great poetry, great writing um, does something inwardly um, that ignites an important part of our inner being that needs to be uh, touched and catered for. And so William Wordsworth talked about this idea um, of seeing with the eye and seeing in a deeper and different way. And this is what, what Wordsworth says about um, seeing with the eye. With the eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep joy, we see into the life of things. And that is the duty of the artist, to see into the life of things, to look deeper. Jonathan Swift records, vision is the art of seeing things invisible. So we have a duty to make things that are invisible visible. And that centers around truth, the idea of making truth visible through what we do and through doing that well. Can I ask you another question? Do you think there's any deception in the way we see things? There is also a great deception, of course, in seeing things and how things are perceived um, that are put in front of us. And that is something that's used to distract us, to take us out of our direction as believers um, in this world. And the power of the visual image is so acute. Um, it's been used in advertising for, for generations, for years, and it's still very powerful. And that first second of seeing something that hooks into your life, into your being, into your conscience is so important. Unfortunately, a lot of that is deceptive sight. It's something that um, takes us away from truth. It's something that can um, fragment the self even more. We live in a very, um, in an age of brokenness, an age where, um, you know, darkness you know, is the new normal and um, people become blind to truth and the world's reinterpretation of truth becomes what is normal and what is seen to be um, the way to do things. So we're, in a, in a sense, counterculture, but yet we need to interact with the culture around us. And we need to shine a light onto the things that are not true, but that are deceptive. And we can do that through our work, by bringing joy into our work, by showing that what we see has worth, and also by celebrating the miracle of the everyday. Things that we see that often we overlook and that we don't appreciate. Things that God has put before us as reminders of his creation and things that we have to be faithful to. Charlotte Bronte said this, the soul fortunately has an interpreter, often unconscious, but still faithful. The interpreter is in the eye. And so seeing things is so very important. And this idea that John Ruskin talked about of seeing with the soul of the eye is an important concept, not just to see through the lens of the eye, that's something that we all see through, but to see with the soul of the eye, which is a deeper seeing. And as an artist, as a painter, as a sculptor, um, searching for that deeper sight and trying to accumulate that into an image um, to make it readable for people who maybe mightn't be able to normally interact with images in the gallery um, by doing community outreach work, um, putting things in the public square, 
is so very important. And those things have to be centered around truth. They have to have truth at their core and truth um, has to be their essence. And we so often deviate from that when we start to make things that maybe may be culturally successful, may be commercially successful, but don't at the core have truth. And so we can lead people away, uh, even in, in, in our own mission, of seeing things as they should be seen by repeating things or, be, or by making things become a motif, where it becomes something that does not have meaning, that becomes purely decorative. And that's not good enough. And so as makers, as people who are involved in creativity, we have to reach deeper and we have to have a wider um, view of things and seeing into things. Um, an artist friend once said, what is the point of waking up in the morning and just making another picture? There's no point in doing that. And so we have to look deeper into what's around us and deeper into our scope of seeing things and how we bring that in through um, our redemptive selves and, and filter that back out again into I don't know, um, this idea of, of creating um, images that draw people that make people think about things, that make people um, question things, that maybe make people even um, question themselves um, through what they see. And so we can, we can do that as makers. We can um, make people rethink things. We can redirect people. And through the aesthetics of making something that has a beauty to it, um, we, can, um, we can impact people's lives inwardly. The last question then, what would you say is the responsibility of the maker to seeing things? As makers, as creators, we have a responsibility. God's first revelation to us of who he is, is as a maker. In the first verse of scripture, in the fourth and fifth word, it says, in the beginning, God created. So that's part of our, part of our being, part of our image, whether you know it or not. And a lot of people are edu educated out of this. Um, I think the education system educates kids in particular away from creativity. So as makers, we have a responsibility um, to push people towards grace and light through what we do, through what we make, through what we sing, through what we write, um, through what we make. And this idea of being faithful <coughs> in what we do is so very important. Um, Francis Schaeffer has an amazing quotation on this, and this is what he says. No work of art is more important than the Christian's life. And every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. That's an amazing quotation. And so we must remember that we are counterculture. But the culture that we have is the culture of truth and the culture of seeing things. In Ephesians 2, um, verse 10, it says, we are created in his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works. So we have a responsibility as believers to do good things and to make good things and that those good things must be centered on truth. So it's about us and God. It's a creator-creature relationship. And it has to be in a relationship that has power, but that power is in obedience, in obedience to God. So in following Christ through what we do, this responsibility becomes more acute uh, the more we look. 
And we have to think about this idea of grace exchange, about showing Christ in what we do. And that doesn't mean to say that we have to make a painting of a crucifixion or a painting of a baptism or a painting of a healing. Um, that can be done in other ways, um, in, in ways that are profoundly aesthetic, in ways that profoundly touch that inner part of ourselves that needs to be touched um, by creativity. Uh, lots of people are starved of creativity. Um, some people don't even interact with it or know, know what it is. And yet we all have this capacity to be creative and we should be creative, especially as Christians, as believers. So the idea of grace exchange, this idea uh, that what we have, we have to extend it to others is really important. And that has an effect. It has a, a building effect as in us as a community of believers. <clears throat> and also it's about giving ourselves to others and giving ourselves um, over to the invasion of grace. Um, and grace does not leave us where it finds us. So again, we have this responsibility to travel on, to take people with us on the journey. So our true identity is in Christ, and we have been called, as it were, to ease the pain of this world through creative acts as makers. Creation is the gift of God, and culture is the way we, re the way we receive and honour that gift. Creation is the gift of God, and culture is the way we receive and honour that gift. And so, again, going back to that first description of God as a maker, um, those of us who are involved in creativity, um, in terms of it being recognised, I mean, there's lots of other forms of creativity that people are involved in, um, in the everyday, that are every bit as important, and sometimes more important, um, in life. Um, but as those who are involved in terms of making, writing, singing, um, all these things that are considered the creative arts, um, our responsibility has to be a faithful one. And it has to be one that has um, great traction uh, in this idea of sharing and not to assure uh, something that has been done over and over again. It's a bit like telling the same joke. Um, the first time you hear it, it's funny, but the second time... It, it starts to wear off. So we have to constantly strive to push forward, um, to discover in our creativity. And in that responsibility, in that maker's responsibility, um, we should always be moving towards the light. Um, I've told this story before, but I remember um, meeting Arthur Miller, the playwright in New York many years ago. And I spent the afternoon with him. And he was a hero of mine, a great hero. Um, I admired his work for years. I never thought I'd actually meet him or get to speak with him. And I remember going to see him and <clears throat> he'd just come through an eye operation, a very sensitive eye operation. And he was very acutely aware of how important his sight had become, um, something he'd always taken for granted. But this idea of not being able to see was something that he feared. So I thought, what, what could I take him that would encourage him? And I decided to take him a book of Psalms because he was from a Jewish background. And I mark Psalm 91, verse 11, about God giving care over, over us um, through his, his angels, through his messengers. And he read it, and he was quite touched by it. And that opened the door for me to ask him a big question about what um, he believed making was about, about what creativity was really about, about what he was trying to get across in his, in his work. And I remember the, the answer he gave. It was such a simple but profound answer. He said, it's all about illumination. It's all about hitting the light. We do it so rarely in life. And so Arthur Miller, as a great maker, as one of the greatest playwrights of the 20th century, knew it was about hitting the light. 
about illuminating. And that's something that happens inwardly. And that's something we have a responsibility to do as believers. Not only to hit the light, but to show the light. Not only to illuminate, but to inspire and point towards truth. And that truth, the most creative act that we can encounter is the creative act of redemption, of being remade, of being remade by God through rebirth. And so as artists, as writers, as poets, as musicians, as dancers, as architects, and the list can go on, uh, we have a responsibility to be faithful uh, to our calling and to um, push into that calling with grace deeper and deeper as each day goes on. And as Arthur Miller said, it's all about illumination. It's about hitting the light. And we have a responsibility to hit the light for others, to show that light into other people's lives. Thank you so much, Ross. It's a blessing to be able to listen in to your reflections. Speaking of blessings, I want to just say a very personal word of thanks to the good folks at the Rabbit Room for their invitation to be part of Hutchmoot Homebound. It's a joy to be able to share with you this evening and an equal or even greater joy uh, to be able to tune in and, and listen to the other folks who are sharing this year at this event. As my part of this session, I want us to look at the theme that is our title, this idea of stealing past watchful dragons that C.S. Lewis suggests. This idea that art and creativity can help us to access the conscience and the consciousness of ourselves, of our community and of our wider society too. And as we do that, I want to think about this with a very specific aim and a very specific focus. I want to share with you about that idea of stealing past watchful dragons, keeping our thoughts tuned to the idea of creative integrity, about the idea of working well and working hard at our creative endeavours in an effort to honour God and the byproduct of which might be to reach the consciences of those around us. I'm speaking in this session particularly about poetry because poetry is uh, my comfort zone in terms of reading and of writing, but I think what I say might have some relevance, I hope it will, to other areas of creative endeavour. Three things I want to think about in terms of stealing past watchful dragons. I want to think, first of all, about the risk of keeping our eye too much on the watchful dragons. Then I want to think, second of all, about some suggestions about how we might creep past them. And then thirdly, think about some consequences of that for my creative work and for your creative work as well. So first of all, then, the risk of keeping our eye too much on these watchful dragons. When I was a young boy, my family had an impressive collection of records of vinyl. And one of my favourite albums, among all of the many albums that I enjoyed in my childhood, was one by Johnny Cash. And there was a particular song in that album that I, I really tuned into and kept putting the needle back to over and over again. The song was, The One on the Right is on the Left. Now, it's a comedic song. It's full of warm-hearted fun. It's full of wry observation. It's a song about how a folk group who had started with the intention simply of sharing their music became politicised. And so they divided along the lines of left and right. And there were catastrophic consequences as a result. Now, the song is laugh out loud funny, but the point that it makes is deadly serious as well. At the end of the piece, Johnny Cash sings these words, work on harmony and diction. Play your banjo well, and if you have political convictions, keep them to yourself. 
there was something about that song for me as a young boy. While I didn't understand all of its connotations or all of the references or all of the politics, there's something about it that sunk really deeply into my heart. The idea that we can get so preoccupied with matters of politics, matters of personal preference, that we lose the agency and the effectiveness of seeking to serve and to share and to create in a way which is true. And as we are living in our current cultural moment here in Western Europe, in the United States as well, where politics is so high on the agenda, where divisions are so rife and so deep, where rhetoric has become so inflamed, thinking about stealing past watchful dragons runs the risk of us keeping an eye too much on the apologetic function of art, on the apologetic function of writing or of creating well. The danger in that is that we can commodify our creative endeavours. We can lend them out to a cause without really thinking about the truth of what we're seeking to do. And in so doing, we can weaponize the words that we're seeking to speak well. We can lapse from writing lyrics to writing anthems. We can lapse from writing poetry to creating propaganda. We can land ourselves in a position where we compromise our creativity, where we yield up our authenticity, and we forget about the before the face of God transparency that should attend all of our good work for the glory of God and the good of our neighbours. And so if we become solely focused on stealing past dragons, if we begin to think that our words can be weaponized, that they can be used purely to leverage those in our company or those who withstand us or those who don't share our faith, then we reduce art to something which it was never intended to do. We debase it and we don't in it reflect the image of the God whom we claim to be serving. And so for me, living in, in our, our current context, living in a world which is fueled by the, 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 the fossil fuels of old ideologies, living in a world which has a series of, of landmines and shibboleths that, that can destroy one in a moment and silence one from certain audiences. As a poet, I want to step away from all of that. I don't want to write in such a way that I constantly pitch what I'm saying, what I'm thinking and how I'm expressing it to certain key issues. I don't want to create in a way which is hot button focused. I don't want to create in a way that, that adds to the, to the dissonance and to the noise and to the unpleasantness and the ugliness that we see all around us. And I think if we're not careful, and I'm thinking about poetry here, if we're not careful, our poetry becomes terribly politicised and in so doing loses some of its God-given value. I think being conscious of that risk, even if we're not particularly political people, even if we're not particularly concerned to be apologists through our work, I think being sensitive to that helps us to avoid some of the pitfalls that can easily attend our creative endeavours. So I think it's good to think about the risk of keeping our eye too much on the watchful dragons in our culture and devaluing what we create and diluting our worship of God and our creative activity. Secondly, I want to talk about some suggestions about how we might steal past those watchful dragons. If we're not going to become proxy apologists, if we're not going to, to sharpen the edge of our creative work so that it becomes utilitarian, then how on earth do we steal past watchful dragons in the work of poetry or in any creative endeavour? That's an exceptionally good question, and yet it's one that we really have to answer. 
Lewis Hyde um, talks in his work about the idea of creative work operating in two economies. One is a market economy and one is a gift economy. He says that creativity can survive without one of those markets, but not without the other. In other words, we can survive without the the market economy, but we can't survive without the gift economy. If we come simply to think that what we produce is something that we bring to our stall and sell to the world, or what we produce carries a tag on it that in some way brings a barb into people's lives and, and, and must prompt and provoke in them some saving effect, then we've reduced what? Creativity ought to be. And so that idea of, of a gift economy helps me to, to assess and analyze my motives. Why am I writing what I'm writing? Why am I focusing on the themes that I'm focusing on? Why am I choosing these words? Why am I using these forms? What audience is in my mind as I seek to write? Am I writing simply to be heard or am I reflecting in order to write? Am I following the, the urges and the urgencies that come with that, that sense of compulsion that lies behind good creative work? Or am I being compelled by market forces that diminish the truth of what I'm seeking to do? But on the flip side of that, then, we can think about some, some good things that we can do in terms of stealing past watchful dragons. In 1930, T.S. Eliot wrote an essay entitled Poetry and Propaganda. It's a brilliant piece of writing. It's so insightful and it's so incisive and it cuts through much of the noise that was going on in T.S. Eliot's world about how Christianity and how any ideology relates to art. T.S. Eliot was pushing back on two opposite poles of opinion about poetry. One of them was that poetry is simply art for art's sake. And so the form is the main thing, that we appreciate the, the, the complexity and the intricacy and the verbal dexterity of poetry simply as an end in itself. The other spectrum was that poetry is merely a vehicle. It's something that, that carries a message. And so form uh, and expertise and, and nice don't matter just as much. And T.S. Eliot manages to, to, to cut right through that dichotomy. He manages to find a path through those polar opposites. And he does that by talking about the fact that good creative work will necessarily point in some way subconsciously to the wider set of ideas that inform it. Let me read a quote to you from T.S. Eliot on that theme. He says, the Orthodox Christian is hardly likely to take Dante as proving Christianity. The orthodox materialist is hardly likely to adduce Lucretius as evidence of materialism. What he will find in Dante or in Lucretius is aesthetic sanction. That is the partial justification of these views of life by the art to which they give rise. In other words, what T.S. Eliot is saying here is that if we write with, with genuineness, if we write with authenticity, if we understand that the framework of the gospel and the framework of beauty and the framework of God is true and real, then that will necessarily entail that people in appreciating the artfulness of what we write and the beauty of what we write and the inherent worth of what we write will carry them back to see some of the beauty and the truth and the inherent worth of the wider set of beliefs that we hold. In other words, that, that almost apologetic function is incidental. It's, it's, it's carried through the work of art. And so someone listening to a poem written by a Christian poet, which is not explicitly Christian content, will hear connotations and will hear 
reverberations that come from the, from the grandeur of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and will prompt the conscience in a way that nothing else can. That idea of aesthetic sanction, that idea that, that the beauty of a piece of work relates back to the beauty of its source is so very powerful. Jerry Root, in talking about the creative work of C.S. Lewis, talks about the fact of looking along the beam, not looking at, at life and at the things we observe simply from the outside, but looking along the beam and seeing some of the wider implications of the world that we're observing and the world that we're writing. Something that looks at the majesty and the misery of human experience, art that sees and says in a way which which allows words to do God's given work. These are the means of meaningful poetic work. These are the means of reaching the conscience. And so poetry has power. Poetry has power in itself. There's a, a weaving of words that, that puts a web around the heart and the life. There's a, there's a seductive truthfulness and, and reasonableness about poetry that lands home on an area of commonality with other human beings. There's something about the observation of the poet's eye and the articulation of the poet's words which entrances us and, and moves us and draws us into their thought world and encourages us to explore not just the, the means and the message but the motives that lie behind it. Seamus Heaney, the uh, famous Irish poet, said this, the poet is on the side of undeceiving the world. It means being vigilant in the public realm. But you can go further still and say that poetry tries to help you to be a truer, purer, wholer being. Now, the best example of that is actually the Psalms. The Psalms are, are righteous, but they're also rugged. They are joyful, but they're also jaded and jagged. They are exuberant, but they can be petulant in their interface between human experience and understanding God. The Psalms look at the terrible beauty of the world and they don't sugarcoat it. They, they show us it as it really is. And if you think about it, if you read the Psalms from beginning to end, there is not a trite statement in the Psalter. And the Psalms are carefully composed and beautifully crafted to give us that sense of aesthetic sanction of this, this beautiful world that the Psalmist inhabits, this broken world that the Psalmist inhabits, this life of faith that they enjoy, this life of doubt that they endure. The words themselves carry that truth. C.S. Lewis, in talking about the poetry of the psalm, said this, Poetry is a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. That's a wonderful way of creeping past, of stealing past watchful dragons, of seeing that, that, that the work of poetry brings into being something that can't be seen or heard other than our poetic work. Thirdly then, how does that affect my work as a poet? How might it affect yours? I think it moves us to write well. Not the write well so that we can put things in a certain way which would be a magical formula for bringing others to faith. Francis Schaeffer was very careful when he talked about artistic endeavour and saying that what we produce is not a tract, but it's art that's based on truth. And so as a poet, that, that moves me to make my poetic work as rich and as free and as full and as powerful and as beautiful and as authentic as I can possibly manage. It moves me to, to work my way back into poetic form, to understand the mechanics of poetry and to also look at my world in a way which is true, 
Truth in the inward part of Psalm 51 talks about that then spills out in these outward expressions of seeing humanity, seeing society, seeing myself, seeing the heart, seeing the world, which is compelling. And so I want to set aside this idea that I can billboard my poems as a means of of cheaply making people think the way I think. But I want to write in such a way that, that the world I live in is infused with the glory of God. Beauty, beauty, beauty. Give beauty back to God. Beauty's self and beauty's giver, as Jared Monley Hopkins said. And so I want to steal past those watchful dragons simply by, in some ways, forgetting that they're there. Looking at my world, laying down my words, speaking out the truth in a way which is compelling and in a way which shows the beauty of the God who gave that beauty in the first place. Thank you so much, Andrew and Ross. I know you've given us so much food for thought there. The poet Muriel Rukeyser said, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. The idea that story plays such an important role in how we understand ourselves and the world around us is not a new one, certainly not in the rabbit room. And it's not something I can do justice to in the short time we have left. But I'd like to finish this session by thinking briefly about the role of story in shaping our understanding of the biblical narrative and in particular of our place within it. Sometimes it's possible to look back on an event or a period in your life that has a dramatic impact on your faith. For me, one of those defining moments was a Bible study on the book of Ruth that I went to shortly after my first daughter was born. I have to admit, I went to the first study with a degree of spiritual smugness. It was kind of cliched, a women's group studying Ruth. And I believed I had a pretty solid understanding of the book already. In fact, to my shame, I wondered what I was really going to learn from the study. It was a four week study and after the first week, we'd covered everything I knew about the book of Ruth and more besides. I wondered what was coming. The weeks that followed had a profound impact on my understanding of the Bible. For the first time, I started to understand the place of the kinsman redeemer in the overarching story of the Bible. But also in a way that I don't think I ever really had before, I started to see the story of the Bible and the way it fits together as a story. That month began to erode my image of the Bible as 66 different books and began to build instead a picture of a holy God who from the beginning of time had been relentlessly pursuing the people that he loves. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the centre of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. At my first Hutchmut, Michael Card talked about the importance of developing a biblical imagination, and what he said has always stuck with me. It's so easy to fall into the trap of believing that imagination and reason are opposites. Imagination is for fiction and reason is for fact. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. The reason we need imagination to enter into the biblical story isn't because it's not true, but because it's so wonderfully, breathtakingly true that in order to even begin to grasp it, we have to engage with it with both our reason and our imagination. 
That's one of the reasons why good stories are so important. Looking back at my own life, I'm so aware of the ways they have helped me engage more deeply with the truth of the Bible. It wouldn't be the rabbit room if I didn't end up talking about C.S. Lewis, especially sharing a session with Ross. But I do believe that reading stories like the Chronicles of Narnia had a huge impact on me growing up, whether I was aware of it at the time or not. When Lucy held on to her faith in Aslan when everyone else had given up, the moment when Peter and Lucy and Susan got their gifts that they would use in the battle for Narnia, the realisation at the end of the last battle that all of this had been for a purpose and that the story was only beginning. If you ask me what character I identify most with in the Chronicles of Narnia, I'd like to say Lucy or maybe even Peter, but the reality is that I identify with Edmund much more than I wish I did. If I'm honest, there's times when my pride distorts my view of myself so much that deep down in a place I wouldn't dare to name, I start to believe that I deserve my place as a child of God. And that's a dangerous place to find yourself in. There's a moment, and I think it's actually well portrayed in the movie, when Edmund stands on a hill with Aslan. He's in view, but not in earshot of the others. His head's bowed and Aslan is speaking to him. There are two things about that scene that strike me. One is the beauty of Aslan's acceptance and forgiveness of Edmund. The other is the knowledge that Edmund's redemption came at a cost that the other characters at this point couldn't possibly begin to imagine. It's because of Edmund's betrayal that the horror of the stone table becomes inevitable and necessary. When I see myself in Edmund, the beauty of Aslan's sacrifice becomes personal. Andrew's already made reference to the C.S. Lewis quote that inspired the title of this session, and this is what Lewis said. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralysed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was taught to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. Stories can give us a glimpse of beauty and truth we might otherwise miss, and there's a wealth of brilliant material about that on the rabbit room. But part of their beauty is that they can also confront us with realities about ourselves that we would be quick to deflect if they were presented as cold fact. That's what I'd like to think about for these last few minutes. If you know anything about King David, you'll know that he was a man who knew and loved God's law. He was a respected king, a formidable leader, but he also knew the power of story to unravel your defences and lay bare the things that you've tried so hard to hide. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we get a glimpse into a darker side of David. Under his leadership, Israel had just won a significant victory over the Arameans. But as the story progresses, it doesn't take long for the warning signs to appear. In the aftermath of the battle, David's alone. He stayed in Jerusalem when the others went to fight. 
He's exhausted. It's evening and he's just got out of bed. He's vulnerable and he's open to temptation. And he sees this woman bathing and is blinded by her beauty. But the events that follow are a staggering catalogue of rebellion and setting aside of God's law. He has Bathsheba brought to him. He sleeps with her. He tries to encourage Uriah, her husband, to neglect his duties and go home and speak, sleep with his wife. When that fails, he gets Uriah drunk in the hope that that will encourage him to go home to Bathsheba. And then when Uriah stands firm in his duty, David gives military orders through the head of the army that he knows will ultimately result in not only Uriah's, but many more deaths. Think for a moment about the two perspectives here. In the eyes of the world around him, David's a conquering hero, a compassionate leader who brought Uriah home to check on the welfare of the people, a generous king who bestows gifts on Uriah, a devout law-observing Jew who cares for Uriah's widow by bringing her into his home. But behind David's carefully constructed facade, the truth as God sees it is that David is actually a covetous and adulterous man who not only desires another man's wife but sleeps with her. A deceiver who attempts to cover his sin with lies. A rebel who not only disregards God's law but influences others to do the same. And a murderer who takes the life of one man and callously disregards the death of another. There's a huge tension between David's public persona and perhaps the way he sees himself and what's really going on in his heart, who he really is. And in first, Second Samuel 12, this disconnect is brought to a head when he receives a visit from Nathan the prophet, who tells David a story about two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man has countless flocks and herds, and the poor man has nothing but a little lamb who is raised in his home and loved like one of his children. One day a visitor comes to the home of the rich man and rather than taking a sheep from his own herd, he goes to the poor man's home, slaughters the lamb and gives it to the traveller. When David hears the story, he's incensed. How could he do such a thing? He immediately condemns the man and demands that the full weight of the law be brought to bear on him. I regularly use John Bailey's Diary of Private Prayer and there's a paragraph on the evening of the second day that stops me in my tracks every time. It says, O oh Lord, forgive me for my slowness to see the good in others and to see the flaws in myself. My hard-heartedness towards the fault of others and my readiness to make alliances for my own. It's so easy to be that way, isn't it? So sensitive to the flaws of others and so blind to your own. And that's certainly the situation that David found himself in. But after the story comes God's words to David through Nathan. When he says, David, you are the man. David's reaction is total and absolute agony of soul and spirit. To quote Lewis, the story has slipped past the watchful dragons and given David a glimpse of who he really is. We don't even have to speculate about how David felt because his response is recorded for us in Psalm 51. This is not a gentle pondering over a misdemeanor. It's an agonised scream from the heart of a man who knew and loved the God whose holiness his actions had betrayed. You can feel David's pain, the horror of his sin and the agony as he realises the depths he has sunk to in rebellion against God. But one of the beauties of Psalm 51 is that in the midst of this shame and anguish, there's so much hope. David is broken. But when it's God who does the breaking, it's always ultimately for our good. 
Earlier this week, Andrew and I were talking about Flannery O'Connor. She's a writer that I haven't previously really been familiar with. And after our conversation, in reference to this session, he sent me this excerpt from Jonathan Rogers' book, The Terrible Speed of Mercy. And this is what it says. There's a kind of comfort in finally facing the truth about oneself. That's what happens in every one of Flannery O'Connor's stories. In a moment of extremity, a character, usually a self-satisfied, self-sufficient character, finally comes to see the truth of his situation. He's accountable to a great God who is the source of all. He inhabits mysteries that are too great for him. And for the first time, there is hope, even if he doesn't understand it yet. There's something that rings true about that, isn't there? The reality is, if we're going to experience God's grace, we first need to realise our need of it. The redemption at the heart of the gospel only makes sense if we first understand the stark truth of who we really are. And that's something that we can be masterful at avoiding. The Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, Must not the disease be dangerous when a tender-hearted surgeon cuts deep into the flesh? Sometimes, often in ways we don't fully understand, stories are the scalpel that God uses to pare away the calluses and let his word and his spirit do their work in our lives. If that's true, then of course it puts the onus on those who write to write the best stories and to cultivate a posture of alertness to God's prompting and to the great story that he is telling. But that's a whole other session. It also has implication for us as readers. There's a prayer in Douglas McKelvey's Every Moment Holy entitled A Liturgy Before Beginning a Book. There's something beautiful about coming to a book or to art or to poetry with an openness to the fact that God may use it in unexpected ways. And it seems fitting at the end of this session together to finish by reading it. So let's read together a liturgy before beginning a book. Author of life and author of my life. As I begin the reading of this book, give me a sensitivity to listen, not just to the story told, but to the responses of my own heart to what I encounter in these pages. What does it draw out of me? What joy, what longing, what fears, what temptation, what hope, what mirth, what love of beauty, what awe, what wonder, what doubt, what faith, what resolve, what unfinished grief, what untended wound. Give me ears to hear, O Spirit of God, what notes the reading of this story would strike and what melody it would draw forth from the tuned strings of my own soul. Waste no moment in my brief years, O Lord. Let all things, and this book as well, be as tools in your hands to shape me and make me more truly your own, more fitly a child of the hope of the restoration of all things in Christ, whose fullness dwells within them. So let the honest responses of my heart to this reading grant new insight into the story your grace is already telling in my own life, that I might be a more willing co-labourer in that process. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member rabbitroom.com slash donate. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. 
Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.